welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Elliot Bazzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rick Strassman, Clinical Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico, about his exciting book, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, A New Science of Spiritual Revelation in the Hebrew Bible, published by Park Street Press in 2014. DMT and the Soul of Prophecy asks a number of provocative questions about drugs, consciousness, prophecy, and the Hebrew Bible, with attention to how a particular chemical can help us understand mystical experience. DMT, or dimethyltryptamine, is a molecule endogenous to several mammals, including humans, as well as the active psychedelic ingredient in a number of plant species around the world most notably in the Amazonian brew called ayahuasca. Strassman's first book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, showcases his research in the 1990s at the University of New Mexico, during which he injected several volunteers with DMT as part of a government-sanctioned research project. During the trials, volunteers experienced a number of similar phenomena, such as communication with other-than-human beings, out-of-body experiences, and geometrically complex closed-eye visuals. DMT and the Soul of Prophecy complements Strassman's first book, but it also stands on its own and gives enough context of his DMT research to make sense of his arguments about prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. This new monograph aims to further interpret the data from Strassman's experiments in the 90s by arguing that the notion of prophecy in the Hebrew Bible offers a compelling model for what happens in the DMT state. One might ask, then, if the Hebrew prophets were affected by DMT. Although it's not possible to know for sure, and Strassman doesn't claim that they were, he nonetheless draws significant parallels between DMT experiences and prophetic states in the Hebrew Bible. At the cross-section of biology, psychology, and religious studies, Strassman's monograph is sure to spark provocative conversations about the relationship between religion, drugs, and the politics of research. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Rick Strassman. Well, greetings, Rick. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, thanks for having me on your podcast today. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure, and I've been looking forward to chatting with you about your book for a long time now, and I was hoping we could first start off by you telling us a little bit about your educational background, any influential mentors you've had, and how you got interested in this topic of DMT and its relationship to prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. Well, um, I was born and raised in Southern California, um, went to public schools uh, from K through 12, um, and then uh, <clears throat> I began my undergraduate training at Pomona College, one of the five Claremont colleges in Southern California, uh, then transferred uh, to Stanford as a junior, um, went to medical school at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. And then uh, trained in general psychiatry at UC Davis in Sacramento. Uh, took some uh, extra clinical psychopharmacology training in a fellowship at UC San Diego. Um, and then I relocated to Albuquerque to the University of New Mexico in 
or spend your training funds for a few more years. Um, you know, within the academic world, I've had a number of influential mentors. Uh, I suppose my English high school teacher was a real inspiration because he encouraged me to write and to think strange ideas and not really uh, feel that constrained uh, in the process. Um, and some science, you know, teachers in public schools were uh, were quite supportive uh, of you know my intellect and uh, my worldview. Uh, well, you know, encouraging uh, a you know scientific, experimentally based worldview. Um, <clears throat> In college, I had a number of uh, inspiring, you know, teachers. Um, one in particular uh, was the instructor for a course on Indian Buddhism, um, which was quite, uh, which was quite eye-opening. Um, also, um, I had uh, a mentor and a friend in in uh, in a uh, uh, in a faculty, uh, you know, member named uh, you know, Jim Fadiman. Uh, who was the first to introduce me, um, you know, to the notion of the pineal gland uh, as a possible, um, you know, biological correlate or you know, biological location of a spiritual experience. Um, and over the years, uh, you know, during my research, you know, training, uh, I, uh, you know, had a number of you know, mentors. Um, one of them was Daniel Freeman, um, who worked at UCLA at the time and was quite an influential character in American, in American psychiatry. Um, and uh, he got his start, you know, doing um, LSD studies in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, and any time the you know regulatory application funding you know permit process you know got bogged down. I was always able, you know, to rely upon him to, uh, you know, get things, you know, going again. I'm also one of the, uh, you know, very useful aspects of working with Dr. Friedman was his emphasis on just keeping my DMT study, which I'll, you know, talk about, uh, as straightforward and as simple and as non-therapeutic and non-spiritual as, as, um, as possible. You know, to, um, you know, to just get the study off the ground, um, and also, and also at UNM, I had a you know really great uh, you know mentor at the time, who uh, you know was kind of a rootin' tootin' you know wild west cowboy kind of guy uh, who just uh, encouraged me to do whatever um, I wanted to you know within the field of clinical research, um, and uh, he's the person who supported my pineal gland study in the early 1980s um, and, uh, you know, as a result of which um, I was able to establish myself as an independent clinical researcher. Um, you know, in, a, in a, you know, terms of spiritual mentors over the years, um, I was raised in a conservative Jewish household uh, when I was a kid. Um, and it, you know, wasn't an especially... Uh, inspiring Jewish education, although I did uh, spend, you know, six extra hours of school every week, uh, you know, learning Hebrew and, you know, learning about Jewish culture and history. You know, we read a little bit of the Bible, but, you know, not that much. Um, and we really didn't pray or learn to pray or 
even speak about you know the personal experience of, of God to any extent. It was more of a cultural, historical, linguistic education. Um, and you know, as a result, um, I still had a spiritual you know thirst um, at the time, and uh, I learned uh, you know, transcendental. Uh, well, um, I learned you know transcendental meditation in uh, the early 1970s. You know, because it was kind of a uh, you know wide scale infusion of spirituality into American consciousness at the time. Um, I didn't especially you know find that to be intellectually all that satisfying. And you know then as a result of you know taking that class in Indian Buddhism, um, I started to to explore you know that tradition uh, you know more and. Uh, after a couple of years, I um, <clears throat> ended up studying and, you know, training under the supervision of uh, um, uh, um, of a Zen organization in uh, Northern California, and uh, spent over, you know, 20 years, uh, you know, working with them, studying, practicing with them. You know, I became a layman. Um, I never was a monk or a priest, but still, um, I spent a lot of time uh, in you know, Zen practice, meditation retreats, uh, corresponding with the monks, uh, you know, getting inspiration from the teacher there. Um, you know, so I've always been interested in, you know, consciousness. Uh, spirituality was a good, you know, venue for exploring that. Oh, you know, um, I suppose, well, you know, one, uh, you know, question I'm asked, um, occasionally, as any uh, you know, childhood antecedents of my interest in uh, altered states of consciousness, and I like you know to tell the story that as a kid I was really interested in in chemistry, and particular I was interested in fireworks and bombs. Uh, and you know, when I was in high school, I spent a lot of time you know learning how to make different kinds of bombs and fireworks. Uh, and I actually began college as a chemistry major. Uh, you know, thinking I would, you know, become a, you know, fireworks magnate. Um, you know, but everybody, you know, uh, was discouraging of, you know, that particular idea and figured, well, you're smart, you should be a doctor. But, uh, I kind of got the last laugh because instead of making external fireworks, I ended up, you know, doing this, you know, DMT psychopharmacology study, which, you know, produced a lot of internal fireworks. Yeah. So, since the, the this new book relies a lot on your previous research, could you say spend a few minutes talking about what DMT is and how your previous research led you to this new project that takes a closer look at prophecy in the Hebrew Bible? Yeah, um, well, I started becoming interested in the biology of spiritual experience in college. Um, you know, I was at Stanford and Pomona in the late 60s, early 70s, and, you know, there was an influx of consciousness-altering technologies um, at that time, especially on the West Coast. And in particular, you know, those were Eastern meditation practices and the psychedelic drugs. And I was really impressed with the overlap in descriptions uh, between the experience of, of uh, you know, seasoned meditators and the descriptions of the psychedelic, you know, drug state. So 
So I began even at that point speculating that there must be some common biological denominator. You know, um, you know, like the activation of some kind of spiritual reflex, uh, which was, uh, you know, the result of either particular mental practices or particular, uh, you know, chemical, uh, you know, alterations in brain chemistry. Um, so, uh, I was first, you know, drawn to the pineal gland because of its esoteric history as a spiritual organ in esoteric physiologies you know, in you know, Hinduism and in Kabbalah. Um, and uh, at uh, the time, you know, there wasn't all that much, you know, known about melatonin, which is the primary, you know, product of the pineal gland. Um, and so I, you know, I learned as much as I, as I could about uh, on the pineal gland and about melatonin. And, you know, there, and in the late, you know, 70s, early 80s, you know, there was some, uh, in, you know, well, there was some, uh, indication of, you know, psychoactive properties of melatonin, um, you know, and even possibly psychedelic ones. So I embarked on a very comprehensive study of the, you know, psycho, of, you know, the psychopharmacology of, uh, of melatonin in humans. Yeah, that was my first, you know, protocol at, um, at the University of New Mexico. And uh, it, you know, turned out that melatonin was only sedating, as it's, you know, um, in in you know terms of its you know subjective effects. And you know, by that time, I had learned about DMT, um, you know, which is uh, a compound. It stands for dimethyltryptamine. Uh, it's a you know chemical substance which is closely related to melatonin and serotonin, which is a ubiquitous neurotransmitter uh, in the brain. Um, it also um, occurs in quite a few plants, you know, thousands probably. Um, you, you know, but the most interesting aspect of DMT is it's a compound which is, you know, normally, uh, you know, formed in the human body, especially in the lungs. And, you know, that had been known for, you know, 40 years or so. Uh, you know, so I was discouraged with any, you know, psychedelic, you know, properties of melatonin, but in the meantime, I had learned about this naturally occurring human compound, you know, DMT. So, um, I, you know, decided to, uh, attempt a clinical study of giving DMT to people. Um, and I was speculating that if giving DMT, you know, replicated certain aspects, of non-drug spiritual experiences like the near-death state, the enlightenment state, uh, those kinds of, uh, you know, syndromes that I could make a case for, you know, naturally occurring DMT playing a role in those non-drug states. Um, so I started, you know, working on uh, all of the paperwork and permits and, you know, funding required to do a DMT study. And after a couple of years, was able to begin that in 1990. So, how did how did the interest in Hebrew Bible and prophecy develop then? Because on on one level, it's a bit of a a turn in focus from your previous research. Yeah. Um, well, the well, uh, I was sort of ultimately led to or drawn to the notion of Hebrew you know, Bible, you know, prophetic experience, you know, because of the data, uh, 
which my game case study generated. Um, you know, like everybody else, uh, you know, both within, you know, the larger culture and within, you know, the academic community, there's an emphasis on, uh, you know, the unitive, you know, mystical state as the goal and the endpoint of the psychedelic, you know, drug experience. Um, and I think to a large extent, you know, that is a result of the influence exerted by the East, you know, by the Eastern religious mentality or, you know, the, you know, the Eastern religious, you know, mindset of enlightenment as, you know, as, you know, being the ultimate, you know, goal of spiritual practice. Um, and in the state of enlightenment, at least as I was, you know, taught within the Zen, uh, uh, school is a, you know, formless state. It's a unitive state. Uh, there's no sense of self. Uh, there's no content. Um, it's a, you know, merging with or total identification with, you know, the source of all being or existence. Um, it's nonverbal. There's no content. It's ecstatic. Um, and, you know, so I was expecting those kinds of states to result from the DNT experience. And, you know, and, and, uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and ironically, you know, most of my volunteers also expected those, you know, kinds of experiences too. You know, because, uh, you know, the vast majority were, you know, practitioners of Eastern, you know, meditation of, you know, some sort or another. Um, or, you know, Wicca, you know, pagan, uh, you know, mystical kinds of, you know, traditions. Um, you know, you know, but instead of, you know, the unitive, you know, white light state of emptiness, uh, you know, the vast majority, uh, experienced, uh, you know, highly interactive, uh, state of consciousness. Uh, you know, they maintain the, you know, they maintain you know, their sense of self. You know, they interacted with the contents which were, you know, teeming in the, the DMT experience. Um, you know, they are, you know, they were able to recall in exquisite detail, uh, you know, the interactions that were taking place, uh, within the DMT world. Um, you know, so that was, you know, kind of, uh, uh, surprise, both to me and the volunteers. You know, of the nearly, you know, five dozen volunteers in my study, only, only one of them had what might be called, uh, you know, typical or classical, uh, you know, formless, you know, mystical, enlightenment kind of experience. Um, you know, but the rest, uh, described, uh, states of extreme interaction and relatedness between themselves and the contents of the DMT state. And, you know, rarely were the experiences, you know, uniformly, you know, blissful. You know, they were oftentimes, you know, full of anxiety. And, you know, they had to contend with that as well. You know, so that was, you know, one of the issues is, you know, that the states that the people described weren't consistent with the, you know, with the unitive, you know, Buddhist enlightenment kind of model. And, you know, it's interesting as kind of a, you know, side note, if you look at the larger culture of the you know, psychedelic you know, community, it's it's all kind of um, you know oriented towards East, you know towards the east you know towards the east and religious uh, you know model. Um, if you go into a head shop, there's Buddhas uh, and there's Buddhist statues and iconographies. 
um, at the Burning Man, you know, festival, you know, the chilling out, you know, tent is called the Zendo, you know, which is, you know, like a Buddhist meditation hall. You know, so there's this infusion of Eastern religious, you know, thought in, 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 into both, you know, the psychedelic, you know, larger community and also the psychedelic, you know, academic, you know, research community as well. Um, and, uh, well, so another, uh, you know, issue, uh, which ultimately, you know, led me, you know, to looking, uh, within the Hebrew biblical, you know, prophetic model, um, was the reality basis uh, of young know, people's experiences within my DMT study. Um, like all the models that I brought to bear on my project, um, you know, proposed, you know, the essential, you know, non-reality or unreality of the states that, you know, people have entered into. You know, the psychopharmacology model would, uh, you know, posit, you know, that the experiences, you know, were your brain on drugs. Uh, you know, the, and, you know, the psychoanalytic model would propose it was the, you know, visualization of unconscious, you know, drives or impulses or conflicts. Um, and even the Buddhist model, you know, um, well, you know, the Zen Buddhist model anyway, uh, would, you know, look at the visions as, you know, detritus on uh, the way, uh, you know, to the more, you know, formless, uh, states. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, one of the most striking elements of the DMT experience is the strong, you know, sense of a reality that, you know, people come, you know, back with. Uh, you know, they describe the experience as, um, as being as real or even more real than everyday reality. And, you know, so if I stood on any of those three, uh, you know, models in interacting with my volunteers, you know, they were all you know, all of those models were, you know, basically skeptical of, you know, the reality bases of, you know, people's experiences. And, you know, the volunteers, you know, picked that up and they started to, uh, you know, close down, you know, somewhat anyway. And I felt I was losing access to some of the most interesting aspects of their experiences. You know, so as a result, at the time anyway, I conducted a, you know, thought experiment and, you know, decided to, you know, treat their experiences um, as, you know, like a, you know, parallel, alternate, you know, level of, uh, you know, reality, uh, which was as real as everyday, you know, reality. Um, and afterwards, I was thinking I could start, you know, looking for models, you know, that could contain that kind of a worldview or, you know, that kind of a notion. Well, so be- before we get into talking about the states of prophecy and how they relate to the DMT states, could you say a little bit about what typical DMT experiences were like for your volunteers? Obviously, you you write really fascinating, articulate accounts of these in in the books, and I would encourage listeners to check out those accounts. But just so that people could have kind of a sense of what we're we're talking about here, could you give a typical account of your volunteers' experience? Well, um, in our study, we gave DMT intravenously. Um, it's usually smoked recreationally, or more accurately, it's you know vaporized, and you know the vapor is inhaled. But that's called smoking DMT. Uh, but you know, smoking or you know vaporizing a compound on a research unit would have been you know kind of intrusive. And you know, people cough, and you don't know um, about you know any kind of uh, you know toxicity. You know, so we decided to give it intravenously. Um, 
and uh, we began this study in the early 1990s. And at the time, you know, DMT wasn't that well known. So uh, there were, you know, nevertheless, a couple of our volunteers that had smoked DMT before, and you know, they described the speed of onset and the quality of the effect of the of the intravenous route to be comparable or perhaps even slightly, you know, more intense and, you know, more rapid than the smoked route. Um, you know, so a you know, typical uh, experience on a large, you know, dose of DMT given intravenously would be characterized, you know, by the effects beginning within a couple of heartbeats, actually. Um and the effects would peak maybe at the one to two minute point and uh, start resolving at around eight to ten minutes or so. Uh, and then people would be pretty normal within a half hour or, you know, 40 minutes. Uh, but it was that first, you know, few minutes where all of the action was. Um, what, you know, people would, you know, feel as the drug effects kicked in, uh, you know, was an incredibly powerful uh, experience, you know, that they refer to as a rush. And, you know, this was uh, characterized by a, you know, feeling of intense acceleration and inner pressure, inner tension, you know, some anxiety just because of the speed. Um, and, you know, the room, if, you know, they had their eyes open or with their eyes closed, um, they would start, you know, to see, you know, the, the you know, pixelation of, you know, the visual field. Uh, and, you know, then it would start to form, you know, rapidly, you know, morphing, you know, buzzing kaleidoscopic shapes of intense, you know, color, you know, saturation hues. Um, <clears throat> and uh, oftentimes, you know, there was a sound which accompanied the rush, kind of a high-pitched, you know, kind of whining sound. And, uh, well, so the rush would, uh, you know, culminate in what would take place in most people, um, you know, being a, a, a you know, separation of their consciousness from their body. And, and you know, then, uh, their, and, you know, then their consciousness would enter into a world of light. Um, and it would be a continuation of the kaleidoscopic display of rapidly, you know, moving and, you know, morphing, you know, buzzing, um, uh, you know, designs, uh, you know, but oftentimes in the vast majority of cases, <clears throat> uh, you know, the kaleidoscopic, you know, geometric patterns would coalesce into more, you know, recognizable objects. And, you know, those objects, you know, could be, you know, kind of recognizable, uh, you know, like plants and, uh, humanoid reptilian, um, you know, you know, kinds of entities or beings. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, they were more abstract, like, you know, furniture or statuary, insects, um, mechanical human hybrids or even machines. And, and, um, and uh, these beings were intelligent. You know, they were aware. Oftentimes they expected the entry of the volunteer and they began interacting with the volunteer. Um, you know, they could ask questions and be given answers. You know, they would do things to the volunteers, you know, somatically. You know, they would exchange information or, you know, provide information. 
you know, they would reassure, they would guard, they might attack even. Um, and, you know, the volunteer was completely helpless, you know, more or less in the throes of this state, you know, what was the expression in one of the Star Trek shows? Oh, uh, uh, you know, resistance was, you know, was futile. You know, but at the, at the same time, you know, you could negotiate, you know, somewhat with them and, you know, temper the intensity. Um, yeah, you know, so uh, it all happened really quickly within the space of just a few minutes. But, uh, you know, almost, almost uniformly, you know, people would be quite surprised at the short amount of time that had actually you know, passed in reality. You know, they would, uh, you know, think, you know, that the experience may have taken place over the space of a half hour, 15 minutes even, you know, when it actually, uh, you know, just kind of unfolded over the space of a, of, of, of a couple of minutes or so. Um, and, you know, they would then come down and, uh, you know, they would just be laying there on the hospital bed. You wouldn't really know what was going on. Uh, you know, if their, if their pulse went up rather high and their blood pressure went up to a large extent, you would know they're having a you know, big experience. If, uh, you know, there wasn't much, you know, going on from the cardiovascular point of view, you could assume, you know, that the uh, experience wasn't quite as intense. Um, and, you know, then they would come down at the 20, 30-minute point, and we'd start, you know, talking. Um, and we'd spend an hour kind of, you know, processing what they had, you know, just gone through. Well, great. So getting back to the idea of what kind of cultural or religious models explain these kinds of experience. You talked about the a Zen Buddhist model of enlightenment that sees sort of the ground of being as a void and emptiness, even though it could be ecstatic. But what you observed in the DMT experiments was something different than that. It was teeming with activity and visuals and sensations. And so could we move to talking about the Hebrew Bible in particular now where you draw a lot of interesting parallels and you have different sections in the book ranging from emotions, perception, cognition, volition, relatedness. So obviously we don't have to talk about every single one of these categories, but could you say like what aspects of prophecy in the Hebrew Bible strike you the most as having useful models to help explain these DMT experiences? Yeah, um, well, I started to, you know, look for other models um, and began exploring, you know, some of the ideas contained in, you know, contemporary, you know, modern physics, dark matter, parallel universes, those, you know, kinds of notions. And, you know, those were interesting, you know, from the mechanistic point of view, you know, but they seemed, you know, kind of rudimentary in terms of answering one of the most uh, important, you know, questions, you know, for me. You know, um, which is the question of, you know, what's the meaning of these states? You know, what are they good for? And um, even though I could explain, you know, some of the experiences by, you know, positing that, you know, DMT um, allowed, you know, the receiving characteristics of the brain-mind complex to, you know, kind of, you know, peer into, you know, parallel levels um, of reality... It, you know, didn't really um, address, you know, the ethical, you know, moral, um, informational content 
uh, of the state. You know, what's it good for? Um, is the world any you know better off as a result of you know the DMT experience? Um, you know, so then I started looking in in in, in uh, well, you know, so then I started looking into the religious you know systems out there, you know, which could contain the, uh, you know the DMT experience. You know, that was interactive as opposed to unitive. Um, and the experience was considered as real as everyday reality. You know, so <clears throat> I <clears throat> spent a little time, you know, thinking about, you know, Latin American shamanism, especially, you know, the ayahuasca using variety. You know, but another uh, important element of, you know, the Hebrew Bible is, is you know, cultural, you know, resonance, you know, with the Western mind. Um, <clears throat> um, um and you know one of the you know drawbacks of you know the shamanic model is it isn't especially you know it isn't especially oriented you know towards the one god um it you know it you know does you know take into account um you know the teeming quality of the state and it's being as existentially you know valid reality you know, um, but I think it's important if one is going, you know, to, you know, to develop a spiritual, you know, model of the psychedelic, you know, drug experience, you know, that it, it you know, comports with and, and, you know, resonates, um, you know, with the Western, you know, religious, you know, sensibilities out there. Um, also, you know, the, uh, you know, shamanic model, um, at least, you know, that being, uh, introduced, you know, to the West is a bit ethically, you know, morally challenged. Um, and, you know, obviously the church and other, you know, religious institutions, uh, you know, um, you know, have gone through and, you know, continue going through their, you know, fair share of you know, moral lapses. You would at least expect or, you know, hope that any new model, you know, you know, wouldn't be a throwback or, you know, like a regression in uh, those areas. Uh, you know, so I started to, you know, think about the Bible. You know, for, well, I was, you know, kind of uh, thrown, you know, back in, you know, some ways, uh, you know, to looking at the Hebrew Bible. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier on, um, I was raised in a, you know, Jewish, you know, culture. Um, but um, after I was bar mitzvah, I stopped, you know, thinking about, you know, Judaism very much. And then spent you know twenty twenty five years uh, studying and you know practicing Zen. Um, you know, as a result though of you know some of the writings that I was doing, you know, relating the Zen experience, you know, to the psychedelic one, uh, especially within the context of the importance in American or you know Western Buddhism uh, of you know the psychedelic experience and getting you know so many people interested in Buddhism. Um, you know, I started to kind of speak out uh, about that, um, and uh, well, it's interesting. I, I, you know, began with my Buddhist practice at the monastery in you know my early twenties, and quite a few of the monks, you know, that were there also, uh, you know, were in their early twenties, and I kind of you know did a a in well, um, I you know performed an in well. I performed an in an informal survey um, every chance you know that I got with every you know um, 
um, with every one of the monks asking them if they had, you know, taken psychedelics, uh, you know, earlier on, and if it was important, you know, to them in uh, deciding to become a monk. And I would say in almost every case, you know, that was the case, uh, you know, that they had, you know, taken LSD and had gotten their first, you know, glimpse of the possibility of an enlightened state and an enlightened way of being. And in, you know, their cases, it prompted them, you know, to become, you know, monks. Um, you know, so, uh, I would speak about these, you know, things in spiritual, uh, you know, counseling over the 20, you know, years of, uh, um, of my, uh, affiliation with that community. And it was all okay if it was, you know, done informally and off the radar. But, you know, once I started my DMT study, started publishing, and then started to, uh, you know, raise that question, you know, uh, you know, what is the relationship between, you know, Buddhist practice and, you know, the psychedelic, you know, drug experience, um, it, you know, got a little too, you know, politicized, um, and, uh, you know, those kinds of questions weren't welcome, and after, and after a while, um, you know, um, was and community, and I parted ways, and, yeah, that kind of, and, you know, some ways, you know, the silver lining, you know, was that it, uh, uh, you know, gave me an excuse to begin re-exploring, uh, um, um, you know, to re-explore my old roots, um, as it were. Uh, you know, both for, um, <clears throat> well, you know, both for, um, well, you know, for my own spiritual purposes, um, and also to start exploring, you know, the possibility, you know, that there might be a, you know, better model, um, you know, within the Bible or within, you know, Jewish thought, you know, for the DMT state. So, um, I started to, you know, read the Bible, uh, retaught myself, you know, biblical Hebrew, um, started reading the, you know, medieval Jewish, you know, commentators, you know, without which it's almost impossible to, you know, uh, understand, you know, what the text is actually saying. Um, and over time, you know, the notion of a prophetic state of consciousness began dawning on me. Um, and, uh, it, it, in, it, and, you know, it was quite, uh, it, it, you know, comported, um, you know, like a hand and a glove in a lot of ways with the DNT state. Um, and I suppose I ought to, maybe take a few minutes, you know, to describe, you know, my definition of, you know, prophecy. Sure. Um, yeah, you know, because in, you know, the contemporary parlance, most people think of it as predicting or foretelling. Um, you know, um, but I uh, expand, you know, the definition uh, within the context of the Hebrew Bible and use it, you know, to describe any spiritual experience which takes place in any figure in the text. Um, you know, so this could be any vision, any voices, any out-of-body experience, any state of great inspiration, um, any communication or apprehension of, you know, God or his angels. Um, and, you know, sometimes, you know, um, there might be foretelling and predicting, you know, but it isn't, you know, necessary for the definition. Um, and it, you know, could occur in, you know, non-canonical individuals too. Wouldn't, you know, necessarily have to occur in Isaiah or Ezekiel or, or you know, Moses. Um, 
well, you know, like Hagar, you know, for example, you know, uh, you know, she was, you know, Sarah's maidservant, and 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 you know, she experienced, uh, an, um, you know, some extremely, uh, you know, prophetic states of interacting with and communicating with, you know, God's angels, you know, so. Um, if you use a more expanded, you know, uh, you know, definition of you know, the prophetic state, um, it opens up a whole avenue or a whole, you know, world of experience. And uh, if you look at those experiences, uh, they're quite, you know, similar, you know, to, you know, to the DMT state. You know, they're teeming with content. You know, they're more real than real. Um, and uh, you know, there's interactions. There's information exchanged. Um, well, I started off with comparing, you know, the phenomenology of the two states, um, and I used, you know, the DMT state as the benchmark, and, and you know that uh, investigation. And in in uh, in the DMT uh, study, I uh, you know developed specific you know categories, you know, for the content, um, uh, you know, perceptual categories, emotional ones, you know, physical. Uh, you know, kinds of this, you know, kinds of effects, you know, volitional effects, those kinds of things, you know, cognitive changes. Um, and, um, you know, so then I started going through, you know, the Hebrew Bible quite carefully, and I would bin examples of, you know, perceptual uh, effects or, you know, cognitive effects um, in order to make a you know side by side comparison of the DMT and prophetic states, um, and it was quite striking the degree of overlap and similarity, especially within you know the perceptual and you know specifically you know the visual effects, you know, but across the whole you know range of categories, you know the emotional um, effects of of uh, fear, um, anxiety, ecstasy. Would occur occasionally, but you know, you know, not very often in you know, the prophetic state. Um, you know, the perceptual effects. You know, the colors were quite comparable. You know, the images, spinning globes, spinning wheels. Um, you know, animals, plants, trees. You know, humanoids in particular in the Bible. You know, the angelic beings. You know, wings and eyes. You know, the colors. You know, the movement. You know, the sounds would be quite similar. You know, the rushing of the waters in Ezekiel would be comparable to the kind of, you know, rushing sounds that people would hear um, in the beginning of, you know, the DMT state. Uh, you know, the out-of-body, uh, you know, the movements through space would occur in, you know, both the DMT and prophetic states. Um, you know, there would be, you know, hot and cold feelings in the body which occur in both states. Uh, you know, so um, it was quite striking, you know, the, you know, the degree of, you know, phenomenological overlap. Um, and as I started comparing the two states more carefully, you know, they seemed like, you know, they were hand in glove, but I thought, well, you know, they aren't quite hand in glove. You know, there's, you know, something missing here. Um, so um, what, you know, started, you know, to appear, you know, was the notion of relatedness and, you know, the interaction between the beings or the state and the experiencer. You know, so I, you know, then developed a, you know, new category of, of, you know, what I called relatedness, which would, you know, take into account the interactions. And, uh, you know, so then it became, you know, clear, you know, why the prophetic state, you know, seemed, you know, somehow 
more you know fulsome and superior you know to that of you know the DMT state. You know the DMT volunteers were kind of stunned by their experience and they couldn't quite interact quite as much or in the kind of you know way that they wanted to. You know they were caught off guard. You know they were overwhelmed. Uh, it was completely unexpected. And when you read the Bible, you know oftentimes uh, you know the uh, individual experiencing a, a you know, prophetic state is able to interact, you know, I'm a lot more, uh, you know, kind of comprehensively, you know, with the beings. They're able to ask questions. It's a, you know, more prolonged interaction. Um, and it also, you know, helped me understand, you know, uh, you know, some of the more, you know, complex interactions which would, you know, take place in the DMT experience, but weren't quite, you know, that well um, articulated by the volunteers. For example, you know, things like being attacked or being healed or being guarded or being instructed. And, you know, so it was especially within the, you know, area of instruction, which started to, you know, really, uh, you know, make the you know, prophetic state stand out as compared, to, you know, as compared to the DMT one. You know, because the major... Um, you know, the major, you know, uh, you know, thing that is you know, being interacted or, you know, is, you know, being related in, you know, both the DMT state and, you know, the prophetic one is, you know, the information, you know, what's the message. And if you look at, you know, the text, you know, there's a prophetic message, you know, you know, which is composed of, you know, extremely you know, beautiful language, you know, which has endured for thousands of years and has influenced economics and law and theology and architecture and art and aesthetics and philosophy and wisdom and, um, you know, science, you know, natural science, you know, mathematics. And if you look at, um, and if you look at, you know, the message of, um, of the DMT state, uh, or even, you know, the psychedelic state in, um, in general, uh, it isn't especially verbal. I, uh, you know, I have a friend and colleague at UC Santa Cruz. Um, his, um, his name um, is Dr. Ralph Abraham. And, you know, um, he has studied, uh, you know, the mathematics um, of uh, vibration, you know, for decades. And, uh, and, you know, he became inspired, you know, to look at that you know, field of mathematics as a result of his, you know, DMT experiences, you know, which he's quite, uh, you know, comfortable talking about. You know, so, you know, we've been kind of, you know, carrying on a, a uh, you know, conversation the last few months about, you know, the message of uh, the DMT state. And, and you know, he is of, um, is of the opinion, it opens, you know, one up, you know, to the mathematical world. Um, but still, it's, it, 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 it isn't verbal especially, you know, there isn't like a teaching, uh, which, you know, uh, you know, comes, you know, from the world of mathematics. Um, you know, it is information, but it isn't, you know, necessarily ethical or, you know, moral, you know, wisdom, which is, you know, at least potentially able, you know, to enhance one's understanding of the deity and enhance, you know, one's, uh, you know, relationships you know, um, with the outside world, uh, on either other people, um, or the environment, you know, so I still think, you know, that, you know, that the DMT state, 
and you know, the psychedelic state isn't especially you know verbal. Um, it's aesthetic. It you know could be mathematical. But if you look at you know, the prophetic state, uh, I'm as highly verbal, and you know so as a result of you know that dawning, uh, you know, uh, and, you know of starting to you know think about uh, you know the content of you know, the prophetic message, uh, um, it you know then uh, you know led me uh, you know to developing you know categories uh, you know comparable you know to the DMT you know phenomenology categories. But instead of using the DMT state as the default, I um, I use the content of the Bible um, as the default, and you know developed a you know manageable you know number of categories, um, you know you know such as the nature of God, uh, you know the quality of ideal relationships, those kinds of things, the golden rule. Um, and you know, then started you know you know to compare the DMT state you know to the prophetic one, and you know, even though in quantity you know the DMT state you know message you know content was 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 you know relatively meager, in a lot of ways it comported you know with the message of you know the prophetic state you know when there was you know the opportunity to make that comparison. Can you say something about the relevance of God and monotheism in terms of looking to the Hebrew Bible, especially since one of your objectives that you talk about in the book is that you want to appeal to a Western audience, and so therefore shamanism, for example, and lack of monotheism in certain cases could give people less familiarity. And so... In terms of comparing the prophetic model in the Hebrew Bible with DMT experiences, what's the relevance of God or, or monotheism in all of this? Yeah. Um, well, you know, one of the you know constant you know messages of the prophetic state or that the prophetic state contains is you know the presence of God. And you know God's attributes and you know God's actions. You know what is God like and what does God do? And you really can't study the prophetic state without understanding the prophetic notion of God, which you know permeates the entire Hebrew Bible, obviously. And you know God plays a role at every level of the prophetic experience. You know God, you know created existence. In, in, and you know sustains existence, um, in, including the natural world, which in, which includes the human brain, which you know God designed at least you know theoretically in order to communicate with us, um, and and you know God is uh, the source of you know prophecy, uh, you know without you know God there is no prophecy, um, you know one can. Train, for example, as occurs in you know uh, you know Buddhism, for example, uh, and become qualified, as it were. But still, even if you were qualified, that's no guarantee of being given the prophetic state, because ultimately the you know final arbiter of attaining the prophetic state is God, because of certain you know needs of the moment. Uh, you know, if you're qualified, that makes it more likely, you know, that you would experience prophecy. But 
it's no guarantee. Um, and, you know, so other than, you know, you know, determining, uh, well, the hardware and, and, you know, the software, uh, you know, for experiencing, uh, uh, you know, the prophetic state, you know, God also, uh, is, you know, the source of uh, the message and the content. Um, and, uh, you know, one can interpret the contents of the prophetic experience, um, but it's pretty hard. And oftentimes what you'll see is, you know, that God interprets the contents um, of the prophetic state, you know, to the prophet or the one experiencing the prophecy. Um, or God's angels explain the meaning of the content. That's quite common in, you know, in, you know some of uh, you know, the later prophets like, you know, Zechariah and Ezekiel. Uh, and uh, and well, and and uh, it, uh, and it's especially you know the case with Daniel. You know there are explaining angels, and you know the angels as you know God's as you know God's representatives um, are important or well well they're critical in in the interpretation of uh, the visions and and uh, and other uh, voices and what's going on in the prophetic experience um, and you know the you know message um, has got to do with God as well you know what are God's attributes um, being compassionate being wise being existent being alive those kinds of things um, and when you understand God's attributes, you know, then you emulate, you know, those in your everyday interactions, which are, uh, you know, represented in the, you know, legal codes and, you know, moral and ethical, uh, uh you know, precepts, you know, which are laid down. You know, so, um, it isn't that one becomes, you know, uh, uh, it, it isn't in the prophetic, you know, world or world view that one becomes, you know, one with God, but, you know, the goal is, you know, is, you know, to communicate with God. Um, and as a result thereof, uh, you learn about, you know, what God is and what, you know, the expectations are to become, you know, God-like in your everyday life. Yeah, th- thanks. Thanks for that description. And so, Coming back to this idea of categories, which you you talk about when you talk about God as well, and how you're choosing to use different types of gendered or gender-neutral pronouns when you're speaking to your, your audience, could you also say something about how, how, how important are categories and terminology when talking about this genre of quote-unquote drugs, which you, you've referred to? As psychedelics, sometimes we hear entheogens or hallucinogens or sacraments. There's so many different words people can use to describe these things. Could you say something on what what you think about how important terminology is and how people might react differently depending on the language we use to describe these things? Um, yeah, I, yeah. Well, that's a very important issue. Well, um, well. Uh, um, well, so the two most common, you know, terms for these drugs are, you know, psychedelic and, and you know, the older term is, you know, is, you know, called hallucinogenic. You know, that's the medical legal term. 
you know, um, and you know, more recently they've been called sacraments or enseogens or those kinds of terms. Uh, but you know, I have always liked you know psychedelic. Uh, it means mind disclosing or mind you know manifesting. Um, and I think it's able to capture you know um, like all of uh, the elements of this state uh, because you know oftentimes there aren't hallucinations. You know, so that kind of disqualifies, you know, the term hallucinogen. You know, the, and, you know, the, and, uh, the term enceogen, you know, uh, it, you know, presupposes a belief in divinity, which not everybody shares, and also a particular state of consciousness, which not everybody attains. You know, so I think the idea of, you know, psychedelic or mind manifesting or mind disclosing is that the most generic. Um, it can contain ecstatic, Experiences are terrifying ones that can contain bland, you know, banal, completely empty kinds of states. Um, you know, I've, you know, a lot of people are unhappy with the word, you know, psychedelic, you know, because of all of the, you know, cultural baggage, but there are plenty of important, you know, words which contain a lot of baggage, you know, like love and God and peace and those kinds of things, which, uh, you know, have been misused and abused over the millennia, but, you know, still, um, you know, that hasn't, uh, you know, made them any less important or accurate. So um, I've, you know, worked hard to maintain and, you know, kind of revivify the term, you know, psychedelic. So continuing on this note of how using words is helpful for various purposes of communication or teaching people. So as, as, as you know from our previous conversations, I'm currently teaching a course entitled Religion, Drugs, and Culture. And so, do you have any reflections you'd like to share on how your recent book might be useful in a college classroom or in another type of teaching atmosphere, and what kinds of experience or advice you have to share about that? Uh, yeah, I'd like to. Well, but, uh, you know, speaking of you know terminology, you know, one of your questions, you know, that you sent me, um, you know, last night, you know, was the one of, you know, referring to God as an it, um, as opposed to a he or a she. Yeah. Um, you know, so maybe we could touch upon, the, you know, that for like a minute or so. Um, yes, certainly. And I, I'll just emphasize, I think that that's relevant to appealing to various cultural sensibilities, too, because like you said, the term entheogen could be problematic or off-putting for some people who might be interested in something like mysticism or spirituality, but not so much in the idea of God. So I, I think it's really useful in your book how you problematize this word God that we have our ideas of. And even when you do things seemingly simple, like change around a pronoun, it really challenges our conceptualization. Yeah, I mean, I started off, you know, with my translating of the text, you know, you know to myself anyway, you know, from the biblical Hebrew um, you know, I was uncomfortable with calling God a he, um, but I was also uncomfortable with calling God a she because, you know, God has no genitals, you know, uh, he's got, or it's got, you know, no chromosomes or genes. Uh, and it, it's, you know, kind of complicated within the context of, you know, the, you know, within Hebrew because there isn't any, you know, non, you know, gendered, you know, third person, you know, pronoun. Um, it could be it, or it could be he, um, or it can also be she. 
You know, and every example of the third person pronoun for God was he, but it also could be it, you know, uh, because there is no it in, you know, Hebrew, it's either she or he. Um, like, you know, well, you know, for example, the day is a male, you know, it's, um, it's say, masculine noun, you know, but you'd never say, you know, uh, if you're, if you're referring, you know, you know, to the day's you know, whether you don't say his weather, uh, I mean, say it's weather. You know, so I experimented with, you know, replacing every instance of he, which was referring, you know, to God, you know, with it. Um, you know, capitalized it, of course. Uh, but, you know, that didn't seem quite kosher, so to speak, either, because, uh, you know, if you're being spoken to or speaking to, you know, something... You're not speaking to it. It isn't really speaking. It's more comfortable. Or it's more, you know, compatible with everyday, you know, parlance or you know, thinking to be speaking, you know, to a person, uh, or you know, to a, you know, to an animal. Let's say, uh, yeah. In in which case, it had to be either he or she. You know. So I then you know decided to look a little more carefully at, you know, you know, the gendering of, you know, references to God. You know, God is called, you know, king in the Bible, not queen. Um, he's called a warrior as opposed to being called a, you know, warrioress. You know, so all of the examples of any gendering uh, of, you know, nouns referring to God were always in the masculine sense. So, you know, I kind of, you know, you know, bit the bullet, and, you know, when I decided to, you know, gender the pronoun, um, I, you know, decided, you know, to go with he. And, you know, that isn't because I think of, you know, God as a man or as a male, but, you know, you know that was, you know, just a convention in the text. You know, you know but at other times, um, it really didn't, you know, seem appropriate, you know, to limit, you know, God to a, you know, gendered, you know, pronoun. Um you know, like when you're speaking of, you know, God as being everywhere and omnipresent, um, um, omnipotent, uh, and aware of everything, uh, you know, timeless, spaceless, you really can't, you know, to discuss or, you know, or, you know, to describe, uh, you know, God as, you know, being everywhere as, you know, he is everywhere, you know, makes no sense. Uh, it's, just too, you know, mind-boggling. You know, so in, in, in um, you know, cases like that, um, I, you know, decided, you know, to, you know, to defer to the it. You know, so in, you know, cases where, the, uh, you know, the text is, you know, describing, you know, God's, you know, being everywhere, I would translate it as it is everywhere. You know, so, um, you know, in my translations of the verses, I, you know, try to, you know, keep a balance, you know, between the more personal qualities of God and the more impersonal ones, you know, by, uh, you know, choosing my pronouns carefully. Yeah, and I think you explain that well in the book, and I also think it works well didactically because it, it brings attention to the idea of the English isn't the, the language we're working with, and you explore various Hebrew roots, and that helps bring things to light. So I think it's a, it's a helpful tactic that you take in that regard. So in, in terms of how this text might be used in teaching contexts, do you, could you say something about that? Again, whether we're thinking in terms of 
higher education or workshops or study circles or something like that? I mean, in a broad sense. Yeah. Um, well, I think there is, you know, the academic approach and there's the more experiential approach. And, you know, to the extent that, that you know, those overlap, you know, that would be worth uh, just um, exploring too. Um, I think from the academic point of view, you know, I haven't thought that much about this question because it hasn't come up before. Um, but I think it, within academics, um, you know, within, you know, the university, uh, within the context of, you know, clinical spirituality research, which is taking place at a number of academic centers around the world, uh, you know, there's this emphasis on the unit of mystical state as the benchmark, you know, the goal of spiritual experience in general, and also within, you know, the psychedelic community. You know, but that's not the case, um, or I don't think it has to be the case. Um, I think the more interactive, relational one, which is, you know, uh, which you know, uh, you know, the prophetic state is, is you know, the paradigm thereof, um, ought to be, you know, given equal, you know, footing, equal airtime. Um, I think you know the emphasis on the mystical unitive state has got to do with the, um, what they call the, you know, the embarrassing stigmata, of, you know, prophecy, which you know, relate, you know, to the existence of an external God who has, you know, certain qualities and expectations, you know, for us as people, you know, you can kind of, you know, sidestep that stuff when you're kind of, you know, merging with a light and then you, you know, come out and you can kind of make it up as you go along, uh, which I'm kind of, well, I'm, you know, kind of, uh, you know, character, you know, caricaturing, you know, the psychedelic mindset, but I think to a large extent, you know, that's the case, um, you know, like if it's all one, uh, it's all one. So you know, nothing really matters, uh, um, as long as you you know maintain a certain equanimity. Um, you know, so I I think it could. Um, well, you know, the ideas contained in the book could kind of you know in a way you know give more life to the study of the Bible. Um, you know, I spend a fair amount of time describing, you know, the medieval you know, metaphysics which, you know, the philosophers of that day and age, you know, developed to understand the prophetic experience. And, you know, one of them is, or, you know, one of, you know, their, um, you know, concepts is, you know, the balance between, you know, the rational faculty and the imaginative, you know, faculty. Um, and if you look at, you know, the paucity of information that comes, you know, uh, you know, from you know, the psychedelic, you know, drug state. You can you can look at those compounds or those, you know, substances as you know solely stimulating, you know, the imaginative faculty without much of a corresponding, uh, uh, you know, uh, influence on the rational faculty. Um, and uh, it it seems if you want to increase the informational, you know, content of the DMT and other psychedelic states, one can work on the rational faculty through study, and in particular, the study of the paradigmatic interactive, you know, prophetic text. Um, and also, when you're looking at people who want to understand the Bible at a more experiential level, um, 
who are you know who are already familiar with the text, you know, in other words, you know, they've got you know well developed you know rational faculties, you know, the state of mind out of which you know the text emerged, you know, shares you know certain imaginative you know features you know with the psychedelic one, you know, so you could you know conceive stimulating the imaginative you know faculty with with these compounds. Um, in order to you know kind of re-enter or enter into the state uh, which you know shares certain you know qualities you know with a prophetic one but still I, I'm not answering your question about if you know relevance let's you know say to undergraduate uh, you know religious studies classes well I think I think you do to a degree in the sense that interdisciplinarity is really important and thinking about, you know, things like psychedelic drug use and reading the Bible, which a lot of people might not see a natural connection in, drawing attention to it can raise interesting questions about natural science and social scientific research and theology. So I, 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 I could at least take, take, take away some few instru- a few instructive points of what you've just said. Well, and I think also, you know, there's this whole, you know... Um, uh, you know, discipline which is called, you know, n- which is called, uh, neurotheology, which is being, um, uh, employed to understand spiritual experience. And it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, fundamental, you know, tenet is, um, you know, that the brain responds to certain stimuli with a state of mind or a brain state that is only later, you know, called spiritual. Um, in other words, you know, if you're, you know, looking at, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, neurotheology could explain, uh, you know, the prophetic state, it, you know, would be, uh, you know, that as a result of prayer or, you know, fasting, uh, you know, that, um, you know, that the brain, you know, generates the impression of community, of, of communicating with God. You know, so that's, you know, what I call the bottom-up kind of model. Yeah, um, and the term I've coined to describe the top-down model is uh, is uh, theoneurology, um, which provides a more God-oriented approach to at least the prophetic subtype of spiritual experience. Um, and in that model, uh, I propose that God uh, communicates with humans through the, you know, th- um, you know, through the ages of the brain, um, as opposed to the brain generating the impression of that communication taking place. So, you know, I don't think they are necessarily in conflict. Um, one isn't necessarily intended to replace the other. You know, theoneurology isn't superior to, you know, n- you know, to neurotheology. But I think it at least allows the conversation to expand uh, to one that incorporates a more spiritual world view, um, as opposed to excluding it um, for the you know sake of a purely you know brain-oriented one. Um, you know, in the prophetic state, for example one could postulate using a more spiritual, you know, model is, you know, that God made, you know, DMT as a means of his communicating with us. 
and uh, you know, and you know, so DMT is you know the right you know substance you know for that you know particular you know function. Um, and in the prophetic state, if indeed it is you know mediated by God, you know, then God's overflow or the spiritual or the you know the spiritual efflux, as you know, as uh, the you know, medievalists describe it would stimulate one's production of naturally occurring DMT. And, you know, that would be involved in, you know, mediating, you know, the contents of the state. And, you know, and, you know, then as a result of, you know, the rational, you know, faculty being equally stimulated, you know, one can then in, interpret, uh, you know, those, uh, um, uh, one could in, what one, uh, you know, could interpret, you know, those contents, um, and extract, you know, the prophetic message, you know, from them. Um, so, you know, uh, and well, uh, you know, so returning, you know, to the undergraduate question, or even, you know, the graduate student question, um, <clears throat> you know, I think, you know, the, um, that people with interests in spirituality feel like they're kind of, you know, pigeonholed into um, accepting either a purely you know, materialistic uh, perspective, you know, mechanistic one, um, or else um, a purely spiritual, you know, theological, you know, kind of dogmatic one, as it were, um, you know, that you would have, you know, to accept um, other aspects of a, you know, religious, you know, tradition if you were to... Um, want to study the prophetic state or, you know, religious states in general. Um, so I think, you know, my new model helps, you know, kind of, you know, bridge that apparent, you know, dichotomy. You know, one could believe in God and also believe in the brain um, as being configured, you know, by God. I mean, you could study the brain. You could induce brain changes, which might make the prophetic state, you know, more likely, for example. Um, but um, it wouldn't, you know, uh, <clears throat> it wouldn't, or it makes, you know, possible, uh, you know, the setting of a place at the table for uh, the discussion of, you know, the biology of spiritual experience for people who, you know, believe in God and want to include, you know, God in that conversation. And I can say, too, that I, in this class that I'm teaching, uh, I had students watch your, your documentary based on the DMT, the spirit molecule, the documentary of the same name, and also assigned chapters from the recent book. And it's sparked, they've sparked really uh, fascinating conversations. So at least I can share one testimony of having definite success with your work in the classroom. And, but what, what, what you say makes sense and fits into those kinds of questions that I think your, your work raises. And in, in, in that regard, in terms of questions that your work raises, which are too many to count, what kinds of future or current projects are you working on that either relate to or, or depart from your, your recent book? Um, well, one character in the Bible who really draws my attention is Abraham. Uh, you know, Abraham was the first Jew, and Abraham is, you know, considered, you know, the patriarch of all three of the major Western religions. Um, 
But at uh, the same time, Abraham didn't, you know, follow the law. You know, the Mosaic law, the rabbinic law, which defines Norman of Judaism. Um, and Abraham experienced quite a few visions and interactions with God. Um, and went through a lot of personal, you know, trials and tribulations, you know, lots of tests. Um, you know, so the whole, you know, concept of a, you know, of a, uh, you know, prophetic religion, which isn't, you know, necessarily legalistic, uh, appeals to me. Um, so I've been learning everything I can about Abraham, especially, you know, from the Jewish point of view, you know, but also from the Christian point of view, especially, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the, you know, especially the perspective of Paul. Um, and, you know, also the Muslim point of view, uh, you know, his, you know, role, uh, you know, within, you know, within the lineage, um, of Islam, uh, you know, as conceived by Islam. Um, so I would like to maybe do a fictional treatment, perhaps, of Abraham's life, uh, taking into account all of those, you know, uh, of those disparate, you know, views of Abraham, the Christian, the Jewish, and the Muslim, um, you know, you know the episodes in Abraham's life. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah, the binding of Isaac. Uh, you know, it's, you know the covenant between the pieces. All those things. You know, being told to leave his homeland. You know, all of those were the you know founding moments of the Jewish you know tradition. But you know, Abraham, uh, you know, never really followed the law. The only you know legal you know thing that he actually ever did was to become circumcised. You know, that was about it. Um, so uh, I think it's interesting to you know look upon you know, him as a paradigm of a you know, prophetic religion, which is uh, a lot more you know, personal, you know, than legalistic and rabbinic in nature. Sure, and it sounds like in terms of reaching audiences, in particular Western audiences, Abraham is a natural choice, as, as it were, to appeal to people that you know, relate to him somehow in terms of their tradition or, or culture. So it sounds like a really fascinating project. So if I could ask one last question before we depart, which I don't normally ask the authors I talk with, but I think you're, you're special in this regard because you've, the DMT research you've done, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, is idiosyncratic and there's really no other studies that have been done like it. And so my, my question for you is, you know, if full government permission and facilities and money are, are not an issue, what, what kinds of future research on psychedelics or DMT would you hope to see, whether in your lifetime or in the, you know, next century or, or what have you? I realize it's a, it's a broad question, but so let me, I'll rephrase it concisely. Basically, what, what kinds of research would you like to see if sky's the limit? Yeah, um, well, speaking of DMT studies, you know, there was a German DMT study, <clears throat> which was published in 2005 or 2007, um, <clears throat> and it actually, um, you know, came out in an English-language journal. Yeah, it was an interesting uh, study. They compared a continuous infusion of DMT with a continuous infusion of ketamine um, for maybe two hours, three hours. Um and it was, you know, done within the context of these drugs, you know, mimicking certain, you know, features of psychosis. You know, so it was kind of a hardcore, you know, you know, kind of, you know, kind of, you know, pathologizing uh, kind of study. 
but 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 still, it you know was a human DMT study that took place after ours. Um, you know, I corresponded with the primary author, but you know she's pretty tight-lipped about what you know people's experiences were like, so you really can't you know tell. Um, and also, you know, there um, have been a you know number of ayahuasca studies that have been published over the last maybe ten or twenty years, and um, and ayahuasca is 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 an Amazonian brew that contains uh, you know DMT and another you know substance which allows the DMT to be orally active, you know, so it's an orally active you know form of DMT that lasts you know four to six hours or so. And there's quite a few descriptions out there uh, of, you know, the ayahuasca effect. And, you know, uh, qualitatively, it's quite, you know, uh, you know, similar to the DMT experience, but it's just a bit, you know, more prolonged. You can, you know, work with it, um, you know, better or, you know, more easily. Um, you know, so as far as future studies, well, <clears throat> you know, I think we need to look at what is the DMT, you know, doing in our bodies. You know, that's a... a very important question. Um, you know, uh, it's an interesting compound, you know, because it uh, is, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, seems to be uh, a, you know, it, 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 you know, seems to be a critical component of normal brain function because the brain expends energy in getting DMT from the bloodstream into the brain itself. And there's only a handful of uh, you know, of, you know, crucial substances for brain metabolism that the brain, you know, treats that way. You know, so it, you know, seems as if, you know, DMT is as important, you know, to the brain as, for example, you know, glucose is. You know, so that's an interesting, you know, finding which, you know, which, you know, nobody's really explored, uh, you know, to, you know, to my knowledge. You know, what would happen if, you know, body stopped making DMT, for example? Um, and, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a group in Wisconsin which, you know, um, which, uh, you know, described uh, increased um, activity of the gene and enzyme responsible for DMT you know, synthesis occurring in the retina as well. You know, so it, you know, it, you know, seems as if, you know, DMT um, <clears throat> is playing a critical role in consciousness in general and in particular, in, you know, visual consciousness. You know, so I think we need to understand what's, you know, going on there. You know, like, uh, you know, some people like to joke about, well, everything's just a big, you know, DMT trip. You know, like everyday reality is just a big, you know, DMT experience. You know, but there are some, you know, scientific, you know, bases for, you know, making that, uh, you know, comment, you know, now. Uh, so I, I think we need to learn more, understand more, study more about, you know, you know, what is the role of, you know, DMT and even normal awareness, you know, your normal consciousness. Yeah. Well, thank thank you so much for for sharing that, and I would encourage our listeners once more to read the things that you've published on the topic, and that can help elucidate a lot of the things that we've chatted about. And so, please let me thank you once more, Dr. Strassman, for sharing your time with us. And I look forward to learning more about your research as it unfolds. Well, thanks very much. I enjoyed the interview a lot. That was my conversation with Dr. Rick Strassman, Clinical Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico, about his exciting book, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, A New Science of Spiritual Revelation in the Hebrew Bible, published by Park Street Press in 2014. Thanks for listening.